Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church, especially if I, if I haven't met you yet. My name's Jesse, I'm the pastor here, and it's good to be with you this morning as we pick up in our series that we've simply been calling Questions, a series in which we've been looking at six of the most prominent questions that come up in spiritual conversations. And doing that because these are questions that are going to come up in conversations with your kids and with your coworkers. Questions that you're going to wrestle with alongside your friends and family members. And quite possibly questions that someday, if you haven't already, if they haven't already, someday questions that will keep you up at night when you're wrestling with them yourself. Questions like, is there a God? Or how can I have faith in God in an age of science? Or questions like the one that we'll be considering today, how can I believe in God in the face of so much suffering? How can I believe in God in the face of so much suffering? That's the question that we'll be considering today as we look not just at what one passage has to say about it, as we've done even recently when looking at James or at several of the Psalms before that, but considering this question and how it's addressed through the whole Bible, and particularly at the bookends of the Bible. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider what has to be one of the most pressing questions that any of us will ever face. I pray that doing so would strengthen our faith and not undo it. That hearing the question and being willing to hear the question and being willing to ask the question would drive us to find its answer in you. That you are the one who both guards the sanctity of the question and ultimately provides its solution in none other than Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, Kath and the kids and I woke up yesterday to enjoy what was really going to be the first normal Saturday that we've had in about a month and a half. In the middle of June, Emmett and I had left for Europe. Right after that, we followed it up with a family vacation. The week we came back was the week we had our summer soccer camp, our summer sports camp. I was involved particularly in the soccer end of that. So this was really the first Saturday in a while that we were waking up to what we thought was going to be an uneventful day. So Kath rolled out of bed and immediately curled up with Selah on a couch downstairs. I had gone back to bed to cuddle up with Verity. 
and the rest of the kids were rediscovering Legos in Emmett's room. A rather uneventful day. Until Emmett stood up too fast and nearly passed out into his closet. Now, fortunately, he was okay. But unfortunately, on his flight into the closet, he accidentally unhinged the door, which proceeded to careen into his unsuspecting sister. Now, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but it also wasn't as bad as it was going to get. Because trying to assess the situation, I was in the room next door, trying to assess the situation and whether or not we had to go to the hospital, I'm yelling at Kath, telling her that I need her help to stop the bleeding, but arriving on the scene and seeing the blood, she's soon on the floor, passed out as well. (laughs) And I said to myself, my wife on the floor, My son at that point, who knows where? My little girl in my arms. I said to myself, I don't have time for this. I'm supposed to be preparing a sermon on how we can believe in God in the face of so much suffering. (sighs) Now, everything turned out fine. We didn't even have to go to the hospital. But it just goes to show how riddled with life, riddled with suffering life actually is. Even when you're trying to prepare a sermon on how to make sense of the suffering, with every day adding one more tick to the tally sheet. It makes me wonder what your Saturday was like. Did you get a a paper cut? stub toe, have a child storm out of the house, or maybe a parent who is unwilling to recognize their own faults in your broken relationship? Or was it like one of us who I got a text from to tell me that his loved one didn't have much longer to live? Or are you simply just swept up in the headlines of the week? How many were there? Could you even count? Or maybe it was one or a thousand other things that summarize the suffering of this present world. Because the reality is there isn't a day that goes by that we as humans don't suffer which raises for many this question that we're going to consider today. How can I believe in God? How can anyone believe in God in the face of so much suffering? Because even Epicurus, the the ancient Greek philosopher nearly 2,500 years ago, recognized that the presence of such suffering in our world seems to conflict with our traditional view of an all-good, all-powerful God. That either God wants to abolish evil but cannot, or he can but does not want to. That if he wants to but cannot, he is not all-powerful or if he can but does not want to, he is not all good. 
leaving us either to join the mob in giving up on God or to take a moment to consider his side of the story. And that's what we're going to do today, which I hope you're willing to do. I hope you're ready to do. Consider God's side of the story. That the, the way this world is first is not the way it once was. And second, that it is not the way it will one day be. That it is first not the way it once was. And second, not the way it will one day be. And we're going to do this by considering God's side of the story as it's recorded in God's word, and particularly as it's recorded again at those bookends of the Bible, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, and in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, where we're going to hear God say again that, that the world, the way the world is today is not the way it once was and not the way it will one day be. First, that it's not the way it once was. And here, I'm thinking primarily of these early chapters of Genesis where we learn that when God created the world, it wasn't like what we see today, that when he created it, he created it good because all was as it was meant to be which is what we read even as early as that first day of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And you can see it there where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good, good because the light was accomplishing its purpose, its purpose of dispelling the darkness and distinguishing day from the night. It was doing what God had created it to do, like a car driving along with no problems, no maintenance light on the dashboard or change the oil sign. No holes in the tires. No rust eating away at the body. That's my current list for our car. And it's no good, right? But there was a time when it was doing what it was created to do. And even that car was doing what it was created to, to do. So too, in the beginning, God spoke the light into being and saw that it was good. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Let me draw your attention here also to the fact that God doesn't simply declare the light good, but rather sees that it is good, as in he's looking for it. And the point is subtle but important because it's as if to say that goodness isn't an inherent feature of creation that will follow creation or follow the creature wherever it wills. As if creation or creature gets to decide its purpose for itself. But rather, it's as if goodness is a matter dependent on God's divine determination. God sees 
that it is good. That, that God is the one who gets to judge in the end, assess in the end, evaluate in the end what is and isn't good. Like how when you as a, a parent go out to purchase a new set of Tupperware containers, that you have the final say, right? Because you're the one who, who purchased them. You have the final say as to whether it is good or not good for your daughter to go in the backyard and take those Tupperware containers and turn them into mud pie containers. Because that is not what you purchased the Tupperwares for. And you're the one that brought them into your world, so you get to decide. So too, with creation and with us as his creatures, that God gets the gavel when it comes to deciding what is and isn't good, what is and isn't fulfilling its God-ordained purpose because he's the one that decides based on his God-ordained expectations. The point, though, is that when God created this world, he did see it as good. And that it wasn't like what we see today. It was good, good, and, and finally very good. Because everything was operating according to its God-ordained purpose. That is, until we chose to do otherwise. Because among God's creatures, he created some who were not only able to love and obey him, but who were also able to withhold that love and walk away. And that's where the story turns in Genesis chapter 3 when one creature in the form of a serpent deceives the first man and first woman into doubting the goodness not of themselves but of the one who made them. That rather than trust God and God's goodness to them, that he had their best interest in mind, they, they should rather take on God's own prerogative and determine what was good for themselves. That's what that whole bit is about of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it, God said, for in the day that you do, you shall surely die. Yet the serpent says in chapter 3, verse 4, surely not. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Well, yes, in a way, but in a way that we were never meant to be like God. Knowing for ourselves what it meant to walk away from God and to live out from under God, at which point we surrendered our access to the life of God. And suffering at its heart is simply our getting what we deserve. As harsh as that sounds, it's, it's us getting what we deserve. 
because each of us in our own way has sought to, to live out from under God and now we, we're hardwired to do it and God therefore has removed us in a very significant sense just as he removed Adam and Eve before us from the possibility of having life under him. Because we were made for more than just the divine kissing booth. You know what I mean when I say a kissing booth? You know, at the carnivals? We were made for more than just a divine kissing booth. When you, you get the kiss, yes, but none of the relationship. We weren't made for that. And especially when it comes to God. Because as grand as that sounds to some, because they can't get a kiss otherwise, that's not what we were made for. It's ultimately not our greatest good. Living like the geeks who have to buy a ticket to the booth, but afterwards never get the girl. I say that as one of you. That's not our greatest good. And God knows it. God knows it because God's the one who made us. And God's the one who made us for himself. So following their rebellion, God kicks them out of the garden. That's when suffering begins. The first man and first woman the, the, in the one place in this wild world where they were supposed to live under the protective presence of God. And they were thrust into a world that really they, they chose, again, for themselves, where, where they and us after them would be subdued by a world that, that, that we could no longer subdue ourselves. In which nature, while in many ways still operating as it intended, would have dominion over us rather than the other way around. And where on top of that, they would fight, we would fight, and all their descendants after them, and all our descendants after us, fight for dominion over each other. Where we would kill and be killed over the claim of God's throne for ourselves. We have gotten what we deserve. This is the heart of what suffering is. Not that every effect can be traced back to a, a, a cause, a particular walking away, instance of walking away from God, but again, that we are no longer under the protective presence of the one we were made for. That now, it's not that a, a tornado displays the magnificence of God simply. It's now a threat to our very existence. Which means before that we look around at the way this world is and use any sort of evil as an indictment against God, 
we ought to first recognize that at least according to God's side of the story, it's not the way it always was. And that rather than an indictment against God, the way it is, is actually an indictment against us. But second, if we're going to see God's side of the story, we ought to recognize that the way the world is is not the way it will one day be. God even hints at this in these very early chapters in Genesis when amidst the curse that he divvies out to the serpent before he even talks of the consequences that would be experienced by the man and his wife. God speaks of an enmity that would exist between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. An enmity that would ultimately end in a showdown where her offspring crushes the head of the serpent himself. Because we all know, right, no matter how many lightsaber battles Luke Skywalker has to have with Vader, he's ultimately going for the Sith Lord. Following me? And yet, to see the crushing of the serpent's head, we need to actually turn from these first three chapters of this book that begins the Bible to the final three chapters of the book that brings it to a close, to a book called Revelation, a book in which we're given a vivid and symbol-laden picture of where history is headed. Where in chapter 20, if you turn there, when history is being drawn to a close, we're told that an angel will descend in the name of God and seize with a great chain. Verse 2, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bind him for a thousand years that he might not do what he's been doing for all history, that he might no longer deceive the nations. That in verse 7, at the end of those thousand years, Satan will be released only to be thrown with all who follow him into an everlasting fire. And that the, the dead will then rise to stand before the throne and judgment seat of God. This is the end at which history is aimed. But look at what follows in chapter 21. We can't get into all of it, but, but look at what John sees, this, the one who was given this vision, when he says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne, the one who, who, who we were made for. Because there's no kissing booth here, right? I heard the one we were made for say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will himself be their God. 
and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When's the last time you found yourself weeping because of the brokenness of this world? What about the brokenness of your own heart? When's the last time the pain was so overwhelming you felt like you just couldn't go on? When's the last time the darkness was so deep? The depression so debilitating, the loneliness so devastatingly lonesome? When the suffering was so significant, all you could do was ask why. This is God's reply. When he says, I didn't start this, but I am the one who's going to finish it. For every one of Adam's race, who in the seed of Eve they place their very hope of Eden grace that the pain he will erase. That by blood bought Calvary's grace, wiping tears from every face without the least of suffering's trace, with man twill be God's dwelling place. That as much as the way this world is, God says, is not the way it once was, it will neither be the way it one day will be. This is God's side of the story. But why, you might still ask, if the way the world is is not the way it once was, nor the way it will one day be, why is it still the way it is for now? Why has God left it in this broken state? Why not just fix today what he intends to fix tomorrow? After all, we... We live by that maxim, don't we? At least we try to live by that maxim. Why would God be any different? Putting off till tomorrow what he intends to fix. Well, if we were to fill in the gap between the chapters that begin the Bible and the chapters that draw them to a close, what we'd find is that from Genesis to Job through to John and James and everything in between, what we're told is that the suffering persists. Since Adam and Eve were first driven from the garden, that suffering persists to draw us back to God. 
to draw us back and to draw us close, to grow in us a dependence on him and to strengthen our faith in him. Because God, through the pain, is calling a people back to himself. Calling those who who wandered from him back to himself. Who will ultimately, this people who will ultimately trust him to do with the pain what only he can. And to do it, ironically, as we put our hope and trust in the one who bore that pain and suffered on our behalf. I was reminded this week of the story of Jesus in John chapter 5. Actually, it came out of a conversation I had with one of you. Reminded of this story of Jesus in John chapter 5 where a paralytic of 38 years was approached by Jesus on the edge of what that man believed was a magic pool. A pool in which local legend had it that when it was stirred on occasion by an angel, such, it was stirred such that the, the first one into the pool after that stirring would be healed of their infirmities. And up to this man walks Jesus, who asks what must have been a very strange question. Do you want to be healed? Well, the man, he doesn't even know what to say. He simply says, sir, but I have no one to put me into the pool. When I am going, another steps in before me. To which Jesus says, simply get up, take up your bed, and walk. Why? Why? Because Jesus' questions was not, do you want to be healed or not? In some out-of-the-way corner of our world where where you think that God is is somehow working on a first-come, first-served basis. Jesus' question was, do you want to be healed by me? The only one who can heal you. And heal you in a way much more profound than that man ever realized. Because we are left to suffer. In order that we might recognize and cling to and ever trust in the one who showed up to suffer on our behalf and the one who will someday take this world and make it what it once was and what it will one day be. Let me leave you then with a challenge and a comfort. First, the challenge that when you look around at the sufferings of this world and the suffering of your own life, and we all have our fair share, that rather than turn on God or give up on God, let me encourage you to recognize in all of it 
with all the aches and all the agonies, in all of its heart-deep and gut-wrenching rawness, that this is what it looks like. That suffering is a picture of what it looks like to live apart from God. And that the heartache left by the pain is meant to, to make your heartache all the more for Jesus. Not for better educational plans or governmental structures or economic development or social projects or, or social progress. But for Jesus. That's the challenge. To see suffering through a different lens, through a redemptive lens. That it's telling you something and pointing you somewhere better. Here's the comfort. That you can likewise see suffering for what it is and not for what it isn't. That for those who hope in that suffering Savior, it is a momentary affliction that will one day give way and fade into an eternity with the one we were made for. That's God's side of the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, knowing on behalf of many who are sitting here today and are right in the midst of suffering, for themselves and the ailments they carry in their own bodies, watching that in others, in, in loved ones or those they long to be restored in relationship to. I pray on behalf of us that we would see suffering through your side of the story. That we would not see life as it is today, as life as it ultimately will be nor as life as you ever meant it from the beginning. But rather simply one step in the journey in the way that you are drawing us and drawing this world back to yourself. I pray that we would come willingly and that we would come to Jesus in whose name I pray, amen. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.